And so let us once again give ear to the reading of God's word, Genesis chapter 49, beginning in verse 1. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul not come into their counsel. O oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulon shall be at the shore of the sea, he shall become, become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant. So he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent by the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that the rider falls backwards. I await your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher, Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by a string. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely, yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb, the blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who is set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. All these are the tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with a blessing suitable to him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active, sharper 
than any two-edged sword. So we pray that as your word is proclaimed today, that you would pierce our hearts with your truth, that you would grant to us faith to believe all that is promised to us in the gospel, as well as hearts of obedience for all that Christ has done. And we ask all this in his name. Amen. Well, beloved Lord, I need not remind you that this Thursday is Thanksgiving, which means we are smack dab in the middle of the holiday season. A time of the year in which millions of Americans will get in their car and drive for hours in order to visit family, to be with them for the holidays. I remember as a kid uh, going on long road trips with my parents and my sister and I would ask one question of my father, which now as a father myself, I get asked by my sons. And that question, of course, is, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Well, perhaps for you, for those of you who have been with us uh, throughout our entire time in the book of Genesis, as we come to chapter 49, the second to the last chapter in the book, perhaps some of you are asking that same question. Are we there yet? We've been tracing the life and journey of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this this, uh, journey that the Lord called them to go on. And we have to wonder and stop at this point, have they arrived? We come to the end of the book of Genesis. How much are the promises of God realized? How far have they come? Well, to answer that question, the answer is no. We're not there yet. We have not arrived. We have not seen the full fulfillment of the promises that God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Don't, now don't mistake things. We've come a long way. We've gone from a, uh, a 75-year-old man whose wife is barren to a company of peoples, 70 souls being down in Egypt and ready to explode uh, into uh, the number as, multi- as, as numerous as the sand of the sea. But by the time we come to the end of Genesis, Jacob looks forward by faith. He sees the fulfillment of the promises, and he greets them from afar. And that's ultimately what we have in this poem that that Jacob uh, has as he blesses his sons on his deathbed. This is the final act of Jacob before he dies, and this is his third and final blessing that he gives at the end of the book of Genesis. You may recall, he blessed Pharaoh. And then last week, we saw him bless, in a a private adoption ceremony, his son Joseph, as well as his two grandsons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And now he has all 12 of his sons standing before him, and he blesses each and every one of them with a blessing that is suitable for them. Now, Scripture calls this a blessing, although, and, and yet when we look at some of the specifics, when we look at some of the statements he makes for his sons, we must say that they're not quite blessings. They're kind of almost anti-blessings, not quite a curse. But, uh, but what he does here, when he speaks to his sons, keep in mind, he's not speaking to them just as individuals, but also to, uh, to them as heads of the tribes which shall bear their name. That's why we see at the very end in verse 28, which I included in our reading, it says these are the 12 tribes of Israel. And so Jacob is speaking to his sons as the heads of the tribes. And as he uh, blesses them, he prophetically declares what will happen to them and to their tribes as the Lord begins to fulfill his promises that he gave to them. And so we'll see this blessing is also a prophecy looking forward to what God would do. And so the fate of subsequent generations would depend upon their forefathers' actions. 
much like our fate ultimately depends upon the actions of our federal head, Jesus Christ. And so in this poem, which is one of the oldest and longest poems contained in Scripture, which employs puns and, and word plays upon the names of his sons, or, or uh, uh, it also employs much animal and agricultural imagery. Jacob paints the picture of the fulfillment of God's promises as he looks forward to the time in which the people of God will begin dwelling in the place that God had prepared for them. And so this, this prophecy is much like the prophecy that Moses gives at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, as that second generation of Israelites are about ready to step foot into the land to take conquest of the land. He too sings a lengthy poem uh, with, uh, uh, regarding all of the various tribes of Israel. And so as we think of this as a blessing, but also as a prophecy, it's important to understand Jacob's mind frame as he is declaring this to his sons. He says, let me tell you what shall happen to you, in verse 1, in the days to come. Now, perhaps some of you have a different translation, and perhaps that translation says, let me tell you what will happen in the latter days. And I think that's a better translation. This is the same phrase that's used later on in the prophets when the prophets will declare what will come to pass in the last days. Here he is referring to what we commonly associate with the second coming of Jesus Christ, the fulfillment and consummation of all things. And yet you wonder, wait a minute, doesn't this have to do primarily with the Israelites taking conquest in the land? with them settling in the land and getting their various allotments? How does Jacob associate this with the last days? We need to keep in mind that the conquest was a type of final day judgment. And as Jacob looked forward by faith as a prophet, he saw not only the conquest of the land, but ultimately to what that conquest pointed forward to, the second coming of Jesus Christ. Getting back to that road trip analogy, you uh, there's, there's many times where you're driving and you see a mountain range up in, in the distance. And, and from far away, it appears as if all of those mountains are right next to each other. And yet, as you continue to drive, you realize that these mountains are miles and miles apart. Well, that's how it was with the Old Testament prophets. As they look forward to the fulfillment of God's promises, it seemed as if it would all happen at the same time. And yet now, looking back with hindsight, As New Covenant Christians, we realize that these things are fulfilled over time, and yet we are still awaiting the ultimate fulfillment, the coming of Christ. And so from Jacob's perspective, this was all happening at the same time. The exaltation of Christ, the defeat of his enemies, and the blessing of God's people as God dwells together with them. A couple other things to note about this poem before we get into it. Jacob will address his sons in order. Uh, He begins addressing the sons of Leah first in order of their birth, followed by the sons of the handmaidens, alternating between the son of Bilhah and Zilpah, and then Zilpah and Bilhah. And then he addresses the sons of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin. And of course, the, the two sons that we have been focusing so much on at the end of the book of Genesis, uh, the, the, the two sons, Joseph and Judah, they, of course, get the most amount of airtime. Ten verses are uh, ascribed to Judah as well as to Joseph, with Joseph receiving the longest and most uh, detailed blessing. 
This poem, as I said, is one of the oldest uh, uh, Hebrew poems we have in Scripture. And so it contains many archaic terms that are often difficult to translate. Even the best Hebrew scholars aren't entirely agreed on certain points. Uh, this, this may be reflected in the fact that if you look at the bottom of your Bibles, if you have footnotes, there's probably a, a good amount of footnotes there giving uh, alternate translations. And while some of the details may be a bit fuzzy, if you step back, the main picture is pretty clear. Uh, and, and so he begins uh, starting with, uh, with his son Reuben in verse 3. And he begins addressing his son Reuben in glowing terms. He says, you are my firstborn, my might, the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. You have to wonder at this point, Reuben's probably feeling pretty good about himself. Being the firstborn son, receiving this glowing praise, and he is just waiting to receive that blessing as the firstborn, to have officially declared to him that he receives the birthright, that he will be the leader over the rest of his brothers. But things take a sudden turn in verse 4 when he says, unstable as water, you will not, you shall not have preeminence. You see, uh, Jacob denies his firstborn son the role of leadership among his brothers because of his sinful act that he had committed years before. He had taken his father's concubine, Bilhah, and laid with her. We read that back in chapter 35. uh, While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went up and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. And then we read the words, and Israel heard of it. And Israel heard of it, but we don't read of anything else, any other reaction that Jacob may have had back there in chapter 35. But we got a clue as to his disposition last week when we saw him adopt Ephraim and Manasseh in effect giving Joseph the double portion of the inheritance by adopting his two sons as full heirs. Joseph gets the double portion, but here we see explicitly Jacob deny Reuben his birthright. As as, uh, 1 Chronicles 5 tells us, it was because of his sinful act that he was denied the privilege of having the birthright. And so an important thing to understand here is that sin has consequences. Even though we may be forgiven, God still allows us through his his, uh, wisdom, he allows us often to suffer the consequences of our sins. And Reuben is experiencing that right here. And we see even more of that in verse, uh, verse 5 as Jacob ad- addresses his two sons, Simeon and Levi, together. He says that they are brothers. Well, of course, he says this not only because they are full brothers, they're full brothers with all the other sons of Leah, but he addresses them together as brothers because they were partners in crime against the city of Shechem. We read of that back in chapter 34. And, and here, uh, at, at first, Jacob uh, uh, condemned their actions, uh, their, their violent actions out of self-interest, fearing retaliation. But here, after many years, Jacob continues, uh, still condemns their senseless violence. You may recall they were, uh, they were trying to uh, uh, take justice against the, uh, the prince of the land because he had taken their daughter Dinah and def- uh, their, their sister Dinah, and defiled her. And yet Jacob here uh, condemns their extreme overcompensation of justice because they slaughtered the entire city because of one man's sin. 
And so he curses their anger in verse 7. Notice they're not personally cursed. He curses their anger in much the same way that God does not curse Adam, but he curses the ground on account of him. So here he curses their anger. And as a result, the tribes descending from Simeon and Levi are not given a significant allotment in the land of Canaan, but will be scattered throughout. That word scattered has often has connotations of judgment. And so this idea that they are not given a, a tribal allotment, but rather are scattered throughout the land, we see that fu- uh, fulfilled in the fact that the tribe of Simeon is subsumed within the tribe of Judah. And then, of course, the tribe of Levi is given cities throughout the whole land, but has no, uh, no allotment of their own to call home. And yet, in a testament of God's grace, we see something happen as redemptive history unfolds. Levi's penchant for violence is ultimately turned into holy anger as the tribe of Levi becomes the agents of God's wrath. We see that, for example, in in Exodus chapter 32 at the, the, the golden calf scene when Moses summons his fellow Levites to take up their sword against their fellow Israelites, punishing them for their gross idolatry. We saw that we see that again in Numbers 25 as Phineas uh, of the tribe of Levi uh, takes uh, uh, takes vengeance in his own hands as he administers the zeal of the Lord. It is for that reason, therefore, that the Levites are entrusted with the priesthood and would serve, therefore, as guardians of the tabernacle, lest anything unholy come in to defile it. And so, by the time we get to the end of Deuteronomy. When Moses sings about the Levites and looks forward to their future within the land, he, he, he has much more glowing terms. He says, speaking of the Levites, they observed your word and kept your covenant. They shall teach Jacob your rules and Israel your law. They shall put incense before you with whole burnt offerings on your altar. Bless, O Lord, his substance and accept the work of his hands. Crush the loins of his adversaries, of those who hate him they rise not again. And so here we see a testament of God's grace that he is able to turn what Levi, the individual, meant for evil into good for the rest of his tribe as they are given this high and holy calling of serving in the priesthood. Well, so far we've seen in Jacob's blessing, we've seen him bypass his first three sons because of their previous sinful acts. None of them are given the preeminence, the the right to rule the rest of their brothers. And now we come to Judah. Judah, whose name means praise. Jacob now surprises us when he says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Judah, of all people, shall be the ruler of his brothers. Now, surely Judah's actions were as bad, if not worse, than his other brother's actions. And yet he is given the grace of God. He is given the right to rule amongst his brothers. Surely this is a testament of God's grace with all the things that we read of, of Judah's sinful actions before we see that he is a changed man. He is one who is formed by grace. He is one who is, uh, who is able to rule the rest of his brothers. Judah confirms what we read in 1 Timothy 1 when Paul says the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. 
that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul said that about himself, and I think the same could be said of Judah who had committed grievous sin, and yet here is given the right to rule amongst his brothers. As Jacob says, your brothers will bow down before you. Now, it's interesting that actually it was Joseph that, uh, that all of the brothers bowed down before in fulfillment of that dream. But whereas Joseph experienced preeminence in the short term, as he was exalted over all of Egypt, the one coming from the tribe of Judah will have preeminence ultimate uh, preeminence in his eternal rule. And that's because the kingdom that he serves is not a kingdom of this earth, but but the eternal kingdom of our God. And so he speaks in verse 9 using the first animal metaphor in our poem. And what animal does he use to describe Judah, the the one who shall rule? Well, he he uses the lion, the king of the jungle. Lions, of course, don't live in the jungle, but they're the king, right? The lions were common uh, in Canaan at the time, and lions have always held regal royal symbolism. And so for Joseph, Jacob to say that his son is a lion, this, this fierce, mighty, royal creature, he's speaking of his rule. And then he explicitly says that he will have this rule, this symbol of authority in the scepter, the, the ruler's staff. Boys and girls, many of you have seen pictures of a king, and the king is holding a staff, and that staff is called a scepter, and that's a symbol of his authority. Sometimes there's pictures of a king sitting there holding a staff, and that staff is planted right between his feet. And here Jacob is saying that the one coming from the tribe of Judah will have this authority, will, 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 will wield this scepter until he obtains worldwide dominion until the coming one receives tribute and obedience from the peoples. Now, when he speaks of, when he uses that word until, he doesn't imply that the situation will change once he uh, uh, becomes or gains authority, but ultimately, but that it will most certainly happen. Much in the same way that God promised Jacob back in Genesis 28, when he says, I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. God wasn't saying, I'm going to do what I promise, and then I'm going to leave you on your own. No, he says, I will will most certainly never leave you nor forsake you. I will most certainly bring about what I have promised you. And so Jacob goes on to describe this reign of the lion of the tribe of Judah. His reign is characterized by one of rich abundance and fruitful prosperity. He speaks of the wine that uh, that is over abundance. He speaks of milk. Uh, these two uh, symbols uh, that if you have wine, if, if you have milk, things are going well. They're going so well, in fact, that he describes him tying his donkey to a choice vine. Only the most richest man who has uh, an overabundance of grapes would tie his donkey to a vine. I don't know how many of you have grapevines at home or donkeys, but if you tie a donkey to the vine, you know what that donkey's going to do? He's going to eat those grapes, but he doesn't care because he has so much. That's the idea that's, that's uh, being described here. 
Wine is in so much abundance that it's being used like water to wash his clothes. Some of you may have gotten red wine stains on your shirts, and you wouldn't use more wine to get that out. But here, the idea is that there's so much wine. The the Lord is blessing him so much. There's so much abundance that wine has become just like water. I think maybe that's the idea of our Lord's first miracle that he uh, performed in Cana at the wedding feast as he turns water into wine. But then when Jacob goes on to describe the blood of grapes, which is uh, a poetic way of referring to wine, he also, I think, is hinting at the fate of those who may rebel against this benevolent king. And so on the one hand, he is a blessing to his subjects, to those who, who render him obedience and tribute, but he is a terror to his enemies as he tramples them in the winepress of his wrath, as his hand is upon their necks, as a fierce lion who dares rouse him. And so here we see this this dual role of this king, the lion of the tribe of Judah, bringing abundance and prosperity to his people, but also being a fierce warrior against his enemies as he treads them, as he treads them in the winepress of his wrath. Well, for the sake of time, obviously, we, do, we cannot get into each and every one of these blessings, but going over now to the blessing of Joseph, the other brother that we consider at the end of the book of Genesis, we see the blessings continue for, the, uh, for Joseph, whose two sons, of course, who go unmentioned, Ephraim and Manasseh, become their own fruitful tribes, Ephraim becoming the more dominant tribe, the most populous tribe in all of Israel. And Jacob goes on to recount the cruel attacks that Joseph had had suffered at the hands of his brothers, whom he likens to archers shooting arrows at him. And yet he speaks of his resilience in the midst of suffering, tracing it back, of course, to the source of all things, his mighty God, the shepherd and the stone of Israel, referring to these, uh, these titles for God, This is reminiscent of the blessing that he had given to Ephraim and Manasseh as he referred uh, to to God as his redeemer, as his shepherd, as the God of his fathers. Here he adds to that the stone of Israel. He is the mighty one who protected Joseph, who took what his brothers meant for, for evil and turned it to good, to a blessing, in order that the lives of many would be preserved. And the blessings that, he, that, that Jacob describes here cover every realm of creation. Notice how he speaks of the, the blessings of heaven and the blessings of the deep that crouch beneath. Here, th- this should remind us of something. It should remind us of the, of the very first words of the Bible. That in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the w- earth was without firm and void, and the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep. Here, Jacob is recalling the very beginning of creation, uh, uh, drawing to our minds the time in which God made all things, and he looked at it and he said, it is very good. And yet, of course, as a result of the fall, that creation was marred. Life was characterized by sin and misery culminating in death, and yet as Jacob, with the eyes of faith, looks forward to the fulfillment of those promises of God, what does he describe? He describes nothing less than a total and complete restoration, a total and complete new heavens and earth as the prophet Isaiah describes. 
This is a picture of the salvation which Jacob longs for. He looks forward to the time in which God will make all things new. And his people will experience these blessings in the heavens above, in the deep beneath, uh, in, in fertility, in, in, in agricultural abundance as the hills are flowing with, with crops. Everything is new. That's what he's, the picture that he's painting here uh, as he describes the blessings that come upon Joseph. And Joseph, of course, is a stand-in for all the rest of the people of God as we all can expect the blessings of a new heavens and new earth. As we consider these, these two main blessings that Jacob camps out on as he blesses first uh, his son Judah and then he blesses Jacob and we see all of the prosperity promised. We must keep in mind that this prosperity comes through the exaltation of the one who is to come, the one who is of the line of Judah. And so we should consider, as as Jacob is the very beginning of the Bible, is looking forward to what is to come, we who have the benefit of hindsight, who live after the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, can see how that fulfillment uh, came to pass. And it was a rocky road. As we see, uh, uh, of course, uh, this uh, begins, it gets a major shot in the arm with the reign of King David, who came from the tribe of Judah, the king whose heart was after the heart of God, through whom the Lord gave Israel rest from all of their enemies and much prosperity. So you have to imagine that people living under the reign of David would think back to this promise the one coming from the tribe of Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah, would defeat his enemies, would bring peace and prosperity. And God realized that in the life of Israel through his servant David. But the Lord then would go on and and expand upon this promise that we find here in Genesis 49, when he says to David in 2 Samuel 7, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish his throne, the throne of his kingdom forever. Here again is an expansion of that promise that Jacob gives here for the first time. God reiterates and expands upon that promise to David as he speaks of a son coming from him whose throne will continue forever. And of course, his son Solomon uh, continued in that glory, bringing the golden age of, uh, of of the Israelites in the land of Canaan. You know, it wasn't, and yet, however, that glory did not last. The sons of David ultimately were not obedient to God. And ultimately, God brought the judgment and chastisement upon them as a result of their sin. And ultimately, the kingdom of Judah was destroyed. By, by the Babylonians in the 6th century. And so during that time, the prophet Ezekiel, living in exile in Babylon, could reflect upon these promises we read in Genesis 49 and lament the fall of the line of David. He speaks of David's fallen dynasty. He speaks of the princes of Judah as lion cubs in Ezekiel 19. That should remind us of something. And yet these lion cubs, he says, have been taken captive. They've been taken with hooks down to Egypt. They've been taken with hooks 
to Babylon to be in the Babylonian zoos so that children could, could mock them. He laments the fall of the once mighty lions of Judah. And he speaks of the king of Babylon as the coming one to whom it is given the right to judge. This is a complete reversal of the promises that Jacob gives here as a result of the sin of God's people. And so only after the restoration, only after the Israelites were able to go back to the land of of Canaan, back to the land of Israel to to start rebuilding the tabernacle, when they were poor and they were oppressed and they did not have a king, it was the prophet Zechariah who had good news. And this good news is that the road to glory would only come through the the humble suffering of Israel's king. He says in Zechariah chapter 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. Here again, he's hearkening back to that promise that Jacob gave here in our passage today. He says the line of the tribe of Judah is coming, and yet he's not going to come in a victory parade. He's going to come in humility. He's going to be riding that donkey that he once tied to the choice vine. So we see this fulfilled, of course, in the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, who literally rode a donkey into Jerusalem so that he would be able to offer up not the blood of bulls and goats, but his own precious blood. And so having those things fulfilled and going now to the very end of Scripture, in the book of Revelation, John tells us that one of the elders said to him, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw not a lion, but a lamb standing as though it had been slain. You see, this is how Christ comes to victory. Not as a roaring lion, but as a lamb who is silent before the shears, as a lamb who lays down his life for us. And so as we reflect upon that prophecy that he will wash his garments in the blood of grapes, we find out in the book of Revelation that his blood-stained garments are not from treading the winepress of God's wrath. As Jesus said in John 3, I did not come to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved. And so his robe dipped in blood. His blood-stained garments comes not from the blood of his enemies, but his own precious blood, which washes us as white as snow. As Revelation 7, 14 says, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Well, praise God for the exalted king, the lion of the tribe of of Judah, the root of David, the one who has overcome, who now invites us to come to him and to wash away our sins in his most precious blood. Amen.